0: Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Story Mode. This is the podcast for Storyboard Gamer. It has been a little while, and unfortunately that's been because after my round-the-world trip, I've had a little bit of problems with audio. So I took the chance to upgrade my setup, and now I have a wonderful arm mount and a shock mic, and I'm recording standing up. This is a massive revelation for me. I'm able to use the fullness of my diaphragm. I'm able to talk in the mode that I'm most comfortable doing so. And I'm really feeling the energy from this method. Hello, welcome to my podcast. This is a podcast about board games. It's also about the people who play board games. It's also about the industry behind board games. I'd like to do a bit of a 360 approach on this podcast. I will also preface that in the last two weeks, I got to attend a local game convention here in Sydney, LFG, which stands for Let's Find Games. It is nowhere near as large or as magnificent as any of the conventions that I'll see in North America or Europe, and that's simply a matter of the board game size. I am still digesting my thoughts on that convention largely because my experiences got shifted very strongly into the free play area rather than the stall area and I still need to think about my opinions on that and I want to have a conversation with the organizers. But this is a pin to note that I was at this convention where I, and and the chit encounter of this episode indulges in a lot of the stuff that got to the table during that convention and I'm really excited to talk about some of that. So anyway, I'm just going to get back into it. I'm going to, I've got a lot of things I want to talk about but I'm just going to sort of focus on a few things this episode. We have a retail experience about what happens at the very end of the shopping hours. We have a bit of a session report for the first game I ran of Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition. And finally, a range of shit encounters. I think I'm covering about five or six games, including some massive games like Demarka. So, strap in, get your popcorn, let's get going. Today's section on retail has been brought to you a bit of a conversation that happened on one of the Facebook forums. You know, this is where I usually get my fodder for conversation, but let's get going. So the question revolves around what is the appropriate conduct by staff for customers when they come in at the very last moment of business hours. We're talking people who come not within the last 10 minutes, but they're coming in at one or two minutes just before close. Now, there is some kind of give and take on this. There's a little bit of reciprocity here. We as staff expect that you as a customer will resolve your business in a timely manner. And you as customer are going to expect that we will give you a little bit of courtesy in extending you some service beyond the functional hours of the store. Part of that give and take, though, revolves around the fact that there's a lot of work to be done to close the store down. And I'm talking about cashing up the till, sorting out the shelves, making stuff is, making sure stuff is restocked. So it's not just pack up and go. And I don't think anyone really expects that shutting down a store is as simple as clicking off the lights. Nevertheless, I still have to dig my heels in sometime when I kind of see a certain level of expectation of the same level of service in those last few minutes. The thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is when you're working retail, you are performing at high energy to a public face for the whole day. You have to always be on your game. You have to always give face. You have to always give repartee and insight. And that takes a lot of psychological energy. So when you come in at the very last moments of the workday, that's when we are the most exhausted from just the travails of work. Hmm. That's a bilingual pun for those of you who don't know it. But give us a little bit of forgiveness. Give us a little bit of latitude. That's all I ask. We have to try and draw upon dry wellsprings at that point and give you service. However, there comes a limit. And it is always a very careful negotiation to try and tiptoe around that push and pull of how do I get you to leave the store so that we can leave at a reasonable time. Yes, there is some expectation that people who work retail are going to have a little bit of overlap from that closing time and there is that buffer window, but when you're in the store that buffer keeps pushing out and out and out. There is only so many things I can do within the store while you're there before I have to physically close and wait for you. In general, I do a couple of things to sort of manage expectations because ultimately, if you are able to manage expectations when it comes to the end of business days, you're able to sort of deal with people a lot better. So just simple things like advising people who are in the store that we'll be closing in a couple of minutes, uh, asking if them, asking people who are coming into the store if there's anything we can do because we are closing shortly, and just getting people to sort of be aware of what can, what kind of service can be delivered at that point. And most people are reasonable. I don't think in the many years of working retail I've ever had a person who's come in and demanded my time at that point. And I think most people would forgive me if I literally dug my heels in and just denied them service. But that path lies madness. Down that path lies bad reviews and poor experiences and whatever. And I can certainly tell you, in the periods of time where I've had those weak periods of facing energy for the public, that's when I might say something or might give you just, I'm very good at sassing people. And when I'm at that point in my energy level, that's what comes out. So. You get my bitchy resting face, which is magnificent in its severity. And you get my back of the hand compliments because I can't help myself sometimes with that snark. But by and large, if you look at the reviews of the store's performance, you'll see there is a very good upward trend of positive reviews. There's a very good commentary on the service provided at our store. So I take it with a grain of salt this has been a long meandering plea for the public to so sort of be aware of what that end-of-day closing fiasco is like for us poor retail staff. I thank you very much for listening to this complaint from my perspective and, and hopefully we can find some kind of way to meet it And today, I'm going to relay some experiences I had running a session of Vampire, the Masquerade 5th edition. Now, I was very fortunate enough to have encountered a little cluster of university students who were very kind to, in principle, sit down and run a couple of sessions with me. They were looking to get into Masquerade, and I offered to run a campaign or a little campaign for them. I in the end decided to use the characters and the story set up in the quick start rules because any chance to minimize the overheads of setting up and running a game is great. Now unfortunately this group fell to the usual shenanigans that typically falls role-playing groups in that university started back up and they realized they just did not have the time or wherewithal to commit to an ongoing campaign but that being said I still managed to run a complete episode and I learned a lot from it. There was a couple of things that were very different from what I perceived to exist as per my read of the rules, as per what happened when the rules hit the table. I think perhaps my biggest departure was observing the hunger mechanism. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, the hunger mechanism is a new dynamic of how vampire levels of hunger grows and compels them towards destructive types of activities. In older versions of vampire, either Masquerade or Requiem, vampires typically drank blood and this was measured in a form of uh, Vitae. So you would have counters or mark down how much you've drunk and you would meet it out to pay for powers and disciplines etc etc etc. So it was a resource that you managed. Masquerade 5th edition has completely done away with this. Instead what happens is you have a level of hunger which can interfere with your the, the outcomes of your rolls. Mechanically what happens is for every level of hunger that you have you will substitute from every roll one of your normal dice with a hunger die. These will still contribute normally to any successes or failures that you might otherwise have, but in the instance where a hunger die contributes to a critical success or a critical failure, these become messy successes and messy failures. You get your objective, but the predatory vampiric nature within you lashed out and was crucial to how you achieved that goal. One of the examples given in the book is you're wanting to subdue an antagonist, and through a messy success, you subdue them by ripping out their throat. So you kind of get the idea of how this plays out. One of the things that was not abundantly clear to me until I put these quick start rules into play was that you cannot remove that last level of hunger, unless you completely drain a human being. And this is important because doing so obviously kills them, which means for the most part of the game, you are carrying around with you a level of hunger. And this sits there, waiting, cautious, careful, always there, as a little bit of risk. And interestingly enough, the larger your dice pull, i.e. the greater the chance you have a success, there is a small upward trend towards a greater chance of them being messy successes. So this gives you a reason to pause and second guess your approach to a lot of physical roles because it's always there, always nipping at the edges of your activity. And certainly one of the comments that I saw online that was complaining about this Was that it just seemed to constantly lead to that it just constantly led to messy successes because of how because it was reasonably plausible for this to happen, and I think that person forgot one of the other crucial rules. You are able to spend willpower to re-roll dice that aren't hunger dice, and you can even do this on a die that is part of a critical success. So I think the assumption is that as you encounter these potentially messy successes, you will burn willpower to reroll and hopefully mitigate them. There will of course be instances where messy successes happen as a result of more than one hunger die. Those are definitely rarer, in which case you can't do anything about them anyway. Or you will just simply run out of willpower. And thematically this makes a lot of sense to me. I really like that idea of willpower as being a resource to hold the beast at bay. In our game we saw a fantastic messy critical and it was the consequence of a feeding scene. We had a character whose feeding method was as a siren and that meant seducing a mortal and therefore feeding on them. Of course the character chose to go to the lowest dive in the city and uh, target the most susceptible person there, and I filled the encounter with various descriptions of lecherous overtones from this person, and the player understandably was reasonably uncomfortable with it. When the messy success happened on the feeding scene, we let it roll, and the player and I will not forget this, said, I poke out his eyes for staring at me. And that's great. <laughs> as, as these words come out of my mouth, it's particularly hilarious to sort of think I'm lauding this horrific encounter, but that's exactly the kind of dynamic experience that you want to get out of a vampire. So I really commend the hunger mechanism. It is succinct and... As I mentioned before, I had the pleasure of going to LFG Sydney a couple of weeks ago, and that day was just games, games, games. I had a great opportunity to get out a couple of different games that I wouldn't normally get. I was able to play Demarca for the first time. Someone else brought Pax Palmer, even though I've got my own copy. I got out a lot of games that I was really looking forward to giving it shot. And I had some impressions, i tell you what. So let's go over them. The first game that I will talk about is One Key. One Key is a new parlour game, which is about visual associations. The idea of the game is 11 images are put into a table and one of them is the true image that the storyteller lead player knows. They need to give clues that will allow the other players to progressively eliminate 10 of those images without it being the one key. If they manage to make it to the end of the game without actually eliminating the true image, the group as a whole wins. And it's done in four rounds. basically in each round the group gets another image which the storyteller gives an indication about whether that image is very alike, medium, or not at all alike to the true image. And it's kind of got the Dixit level sort of imagery where everything is surreal, there's lots of visual components and themes and topics and motifs. So there's multiple explanations for why there might be associations or non-associations. And in fact, this is where I found myself a little frustrated with the game, to be honest. There were too many plausible explanations for any given uh, image. And there wasn't enough sort of internal logic. It's just one of those ones where you have to know how each other thinks more so than I found in other sort of visually clued games. It was a very interesting concept. And I think the execution was intriguing, but the visual elements were very, very particular. And that created that kind of experience for me. So I didn't hate it, but I just have a reservation based on that interaction. The next game I want to cover is Demarker. Now, I will point out that I didn't get to play a full game of this, despite setting out a good what ended up being three-ish hours. I think we managed to play four full elections, by which time I still felt I had enough of a sense of the game to take away an opinion, even though there's clearly more trajectory of similar gameplay to go. Marker is a game of the election of German Parliament. You represent a party and the idea is you're trying to win uh, seats in specific electorate. So each round of play is one single electorate cycle. And I'm not going to go into details about all the little bits and pieces, but there's sort of lots of little pieces that you can push and pull to win over the public favour, to Align your policy platform either with others or with the regional situation or the national interest. So there's all sorts of dynamics that you can tune yourself into or out of to prime yourself for electoral success. And it is enough; it is deterministic enough that you can properly plot for it, which you know obviously is a one step removed from the reality of elections. But that's beside the point. And because it is an old. Chit and Counter style game, it has that very dry experience and very much versed in that genre of game. So I'm glad I got to play an older version of Die Mache before uh, Stronghold brings out the new version sometime next year. I'm very interested in trying that out. So overall, my impressions of this game were very positive. Yes, it is a big labyrinthine monstrous game. There's a lot going on and there's a lot to crunch with this game. But I found for all that it was such a heavy lift of a game. There was not really a point in time where I didn't feel engaged. So the time just moved on quickly and it's only because we took a check that we realized X amount of time had already passed largely because, you know, we're all sort of trying to learn the game as well. So that speaks very highly to me that I can play such a heavy game that sustained and engaged my interest for that length of time. Very stimulating, very interesting game. I will say I do think the game is too long anyway. I could see the trajectory that it was trying to achieve from having sort of full seven seasons of elections. And I understand that the version coming out through the Kickstarter will allow for some scaling. And I think that's going to be so important because we reached that fourth election and I'm not sure that there was a beat being offered beyond that fourth election. There was some things to do with campaign finances and so there's some adjustments that might need to be that made there in terms of how the game cycles but I really don't feel like I would have had a significantly distinctive experience beyond what was already offered in those first four elections. So I'm hoping the game does get retooled to allow what was a good, you know, three hour of experience to be fulfilled in that three hours, as opposed to maybe a mediocre five hour experience, because that's what it was looking like it was heading towards. I also got a chance to play the new Pax Pamir. Now this is a particularly interesting game for me because if you are aware of the editorials that I've sometimes written, one of the most well-read editorials that I wrote was in response to something within the first edition of Pax Pamir, where Phil Eklund effectively wrote a love letter to colonialism and its impact upon the world. I basically took Phil Eklund's argument to task, having deep-seated reservations for his points. I didn't think they were particularly strongly put or articulated either. And I say this as someone whose academic background is international relations and global politics. So, you know, I like to think I have something legitimate to say on the topic. Anyway, uh, Cole World, the designer of the game, sought me out at Origins and decided to give me a copy of the new Pax Pamir with an exhortation that I should give it a second chance as Phil Eklund's piece was never really included with his permission or his sort of design brief and in fact he wanted to try and create an experience embedded into the great game trying to show what a clusterfuck it was and what a like it's, it's meant to be an homage to what imperialism is like with a sensibility of how that impacts the local peoples. And so we got to play a game of Pax Mimir and there's so much of this game that I'm trying to digest. I still find that my opinions on it are weakly about the game and the gameplay and more about the amazingly elaborate components and more about the sort of and the sort of dive into the historical footnotes of this era. So my experience of this game has been more what a love letter it is to this historical brief than necessarily as a game. It, one of the things that I did come away with was how interesting it was for me for, uh, topics and themes to really help cement gameplay in for me. And I think, I was observing the fact that I was switching off a little bit because in terms of a board game, the theme doesn't resonate with me because on some level I'm processing this theme as work or study or sort of connecting to it in a different way. So I'm not in that game headspace. And there was a second part of me that it was observing that in all prin- in all reality, had this been sort of an economically structured game, my brain would be processing it in a completely different way. And so my whole experience of this game was just this internal dialogue between this part observing that I wasn't observing it and this part observing why wasn't I observing that I was observing it. It it was very meta. Um, So I'm I'm a little bit of a loss to say whether I was impressed by the gameplay, but I know I'm still digesting it and I do want to try it out again. The fact that there is a war game that treats the topic soberly and sensibly that I want to come back to, I think speaks highly of it. Now the final game that I want to cover in just these chit encounters is Symphony Number 9. Symphony Number 9 is an ahistorical abstract game where you are patrons sponsoring various historical musicians realistically, you're wanting to be the person. It's a bit of an area control game where you're trying to acquire cubes and have the patronage of particular composers. But then at the end of the game, the composers that you have are particular scoring mechanisms. And so there's a lot of sort of little interlocking pieces that inform your majority control. And... I guess the fact that it sounds very obscure and weird and without any kind of clarity is really my takeaway on this game, to be honest. I kind of liked it, you know, I I got to sort of get a sense of what it was about and I saw kind of clever mechanisms here and there, but the game wasn't telling me that story. I was sort of sitting there going, I understand what I'm doing and kind of how it's meant to get me points and objectives. And it just felt like the theme was sitting at odds with the kind of logic that I was trying to do. So, you know, there's I'm wanting to sponsor musicians and make great works of art and profit from it. But mechanically, I'm trying to put money on cubes and sort of see what other people are doing and try to have the best and think forward. It's intricate, but I don't think the intricacy gave me a unique defining experience. I didn't walk away from the game going, I've had this wonderful session talking, uh, uh, sponsoring musicians and helping compose symphony. I walked away going, I've had a bit of a brain box burn where I thought about which cubes to pick up. And if I'm thinking more about the cubes, then I'm really not thinking about the game. And yeah, look, it, it didn't leave a bad impression upon me. Like I, I had fun. I'm probably not gonna seek it out again myself, to be honest, despite the pretty colors. And I really, really wanted to like it because it's got this wonderful, almost rainbow palette, almost, and that's a sin. I just, uh, Brown is not part of the rainbow. They know that, but I'm being finicky. Still, I, I was very happy to see a game that was about composition and music and symphonies as opposed to so many of the other topics that get done to death. I just wish that the theme was something that translated more coherently into the gameplay and unfortunately it did not for me. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Story Mode. This is just my usual cleanup of the episode. I would love if you would support me. I have set it up now so that you can find me as Storyboard Gamer on every single platform that I'm on. If you're on Facebook, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, if you are on YouTube, if you're on Board Game Geek, if you're on iTunes, Just search for Storyboard Gamer and you will find me. If you're on Patreon and you want to give me some money, you can find me that way. But that has been a lot to deal with. So until next time, good night.